James chapter 2 is narrated here, verses 1 through 17, by Johnny Cash. Chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We've been preaching through this book for, this is week number five. We're calling this series, preaching through it paragraph by paragraph, Fixes for Fruitful Faith. The word fix is used in the sense that it is used in the realm of navigation. If you have a GPS to direct you where you want to go, the GPS has to know where you're located before it can make the projection. It can spot where you want to go, but the GPS will not work for you by directing you without knowing where you're located. In ancient mariner times, they even use this in the naval world, finding where you're located out in the middle of the ocean, getting a location point is called getting a fix on your location. And like a mirror gets a fix on your appearance, this book will get a fix on your spiritual location so that you can head where you want to go. Who knows we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Who none other could help us with this than James, one of the brothers of Jesus. He had three other brothers. Joseph was one, and Simon and Judas. We call him Jude for obvious reasons. And he is one of the two that wrote books. Judas wrote the other one. We call it Jude. And in verse 5, he says, listen, 
My beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He's getting on their case. If someone comes into the synagogue or in your assembly and they're dressed up really nice, you give them a nice place to sit. But if they're dressed poorly, if their clothes are dirty, if they look ragged, you let them sit on the floor or sit at your footstool or stand at the back. And so he's rebuking them for this because this is showing partiality. Who knows, God is no respecter of persons. He loves us all the same. And so based on people's appearance, you may think they're rich and they may not be. And based on their appearance, you may think they're poor and they may not be. They maybe just had a rough night and needed to come hear the word of God proclaimed. So you don't know who you're dealing with if you deal with appearances. The Old Testament says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So we have to let God be the judge of hearts, and we are to walk and love everybody. This is pure religion that operates like this. And if they are rich, they may be righteously rich, or they could be wickedly rich. And he's speaking here of the wicked rich. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. In Matthew, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke, he said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So ultimately, in light of eternity, the poor who are rich in faith are the richest of us all. I've lived in the third world where people may not have resources to lean upon, so they cry out to God. They can pray like you've never heard anybody pray because God is their only hope, and they are rich in faith. But here he's talking about those who are rich wickedly. He says, you've dishonored the poor man, and do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Aren't they most likely to sue you? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So the rich don't necessarily have it all going on. They can depend on their resources more than depending on the Lord. And they could get stingy with their belongings and, like the rich fool, build bigger barns to house their blessings and miss out on the opportunity of living a generous life. So... We don't want to dishonor the poor or the rich. Not talking about dishonoring the rich here. But we are talking about loving people, period. Now, Marxism, communism, has accused Christianity of being the opiate religion, of being the opiate of the masses. I don't know about the other religions, but Christianity, true Christianity, pure Christianity, emphasizes ministering to the poor empowering the poor, blessing the poor, uh, giving them a hand up, not the other way around. So Marxism probably is dealing with hypocritical Christianity of the day that Karl Marx was alive. And here James is addressing us in such a way that we can deal with any ounce of that kind of hypocrisy in our own lives. Jesus went to the lost sheep of Israel. He went to the poor. He fed the thousands, and he taught the truth that they all needed to hear, rich or poor. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, can we say royal? According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. When Jesus was asked what the greatest laws were, 
And when he asked what the greatest laws were, it was proven by himself and those speaking to him that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest law, and the second greatest is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some people say, well, I don't love myself, so I'm not going to love my neighbor. I'm going to work on loving myself. That in itself is proof that you love yourself. A preoccupation with self. Self, we even have a language out there. I mean, a magazine out there called self. Another one, not quite so obvious, called us. It's all about me. Some churches, their theme song is it's all about you. It's not. It's all about Jesus. All about him. And so we need to fulfill the royal law, which is loving our neighbor as ourselves. But verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. No one wants to be slighted because of their appearance, correct? But when we do that kind of thing, we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. If we were poor and down on our luck, wouldn't we want someone to give us a hand, right? If we needed some justice, but wouldn't we want some mercy? So when we live in light of that, principle, we're not showing partiality. But if we do show partiality and live with favoritism operating our lives, we're committing sin because we're not loving our neighbor as ourself. And according to the law of God, we are transgressors. Verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You know, maybe you're prejudiced, but at least you didn't kill anybody. Maybe you're a liar, but at least I didn't steal. It's as though obedience to some laws negates disobedience to others. No. Disobedience in one, you've broken them all according to this principle. For whoever shall keep the whole law, can we say whole? So we've seen the royal law, now we see the whole law. And yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If you cheat on your spouse, but say, hey, I didn't kill him or kill her, you've still broken the law of God. Verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Can we say liberty? liberty. The law of freedom. We'll look at what that is here in a minute. 4, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. His half-brother Jesus said it like this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So he jumps from the legalist who hides behind his obedience to cover for his disobedience. And now he moves on to the evangelical, the Calvinist, the Bible believer who's saved by grace through faith, right? Who's saved by faith and confronts them for their disobedience. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? In these days of 
preachers who proclaim the gospel of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, stab it and slab it and kill it and chill it. Be warmed, be filled as they go back to their comfortable lifestyles, not doing anything to help the people that are hurting. But I gave them the word. I proclaimed. I prophesied a bright future for them. I told them over the microphone, 2024 is going to give you more. And then there's no change because you've done nothing with your life. Our mouths write checks that our lives are not cashing. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us from your word in such a way it impacts the way we live and the way we relate to your blessings in our lives personally and the way we relate to those who need some love expressed through actions and generosity and kindness and mercy. In Jesus' name, Lord, make us more like you. Everybody said, Amen. So today I'd like to talk to you about the features of fruitful faithfulness. It's one thing to be faithful at the wrong thing. Another thing to be faithful at the right thing. Faithfulness in itself could be called stubbornness if you're not faithful at the right thing. But righteous faithfulness is what we're talking about because righteous faithfulness brings forth fruit in our life. Who wants to be faithful and fruitful? Who wants to be fruitfully faithful? (laughs) Faithfully fruitful. You get the point. Beloved brothers and sisters should always be impartial to the poor. Verse 5 says, listen, my beloved brethren. This is the brother of Jesus calling us brethren. And sistren, of course, you know that's implied. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man by treating them poorly, making them feel less than. Now, I have to say this. There are sometimes we wrestle with inferiority complexes and we may feel slighted because we're poor or because we're down on our luck or because of some other issue. And we could jump to the conclusion they're partial. They're being partial. But that may not be the case. It may be that they have a blind spot or it may be you don't have the whole picture. So speak the truth to yourself that you've been given the righteousness of God and that he is dealing with you in ways that no one else can and that he would have mercy on the person that you're tempted to be offended by. Who knows, when we're offended, we've made a choice. Oh, no, you didn't. Popping our neck and getting all offended because we've made a choice to. But you can choose not to be offended and say, listen, partiality happens in the world. This may not be the case, but I'm not going to let it ruin my day and give me a bad attitude and tempt me to run my mouth to the world, whoever listens to me. All right, so that was for free there. Back to the sermon. So we're God's beloved brethren and sisterin, or as they say in South Africa, the bros and the stirs. Listen to me. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. He balances things out. For the poor, things may not be fair right now, but in the long run, he's a just God. 
The story's not over. Beloved brothers and sisters should always be wise around the wicked. Wise. There's a proverb that says, if a rich man sits you down to eat with him, put a knife to your throat because you don't know what actually he's going to be doing with this attempt at faux generosity. He's going to probably manipulate you in some way. Do not the rich oppress you, verse 6 says, and drag you into the courts. So be careful. Be wise. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? He had just written earlier that his brother Jesus was the Lord of glory, the one who's above all. And there are wicked people out there using their money to oppress us. So don't be impressed by money, but be impressed by the love of God and love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Everybody, rich and poor. All right, moving right along. Beloved brothers and sisters should always be obedient to the royal law. Verse 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. So when we're partial, when we're prejudiced, when we're unmerciful, we're not loving our neighbors ourselves, and we're not obeying the royal law, which is to do so. This is elevated. It was called one of the first commandments, right? The second one is like the first one, loving God with everything that's in us. Loving our neighbor as ourself is like the first one. Why? Because our neighbor is made in the image of God. And John said, if you can't love your brother who you have seen, how can you love God who you've not seen? They're made in the image of God. Well, I don't like the way they look. Well, who died and made you God? So, got to watch that. But if you show partiality, verse 9, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's read that together. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If you've broken the royal law, you've broken all the law, the whole law. Beloved brothers and sisters should always be reminded that good works never justify sin. Saul, disobeying the command of God for him to wipe out the Amalekites, thought he could save some stuff for himself and some stuff for worship, including livestock, and he was to wipe out the whole nation. And Samuel said, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than Religious exercise. What God has called you to do, we must obey, right? While we're on the subject of the rich, let's just bring this up. Some people use the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? They use his story to beat us all up. Who knows? In America, we're all rich. Compared to the third world, I can tell you right now, if you're on welfare, you are rich. You are rich. So it's a matter of uh, culture, defining what rich is. He told the rich young ruler, if you want eternal life, obey the law. He says, I've done it. He says, one thing lacks. 
What was that? He hadn't loved his neighbors himself, obviously. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He went away sorrowful because he had great riches. Do you know that's the only recorded time that Jesus told someone that? He went to the home of Zacchaeus, the wicked tax collector. So the guy says, I'm going to pay back the people I robbed. Peter had a house. Didn't give it away. He had a house where his family lived, including his mother-in-law, right? John and his brother James still had a right to use their father's boats. They didn't give that away, but they gave away what the Lord called them to give away. So some people are afraid to follow Jesus because they don't want to take a vow of poverty. There's one denomination that kind of really highlights that. If God's called you to do that, make sure it's him and then do it and he will provide your needs. But if he hasn't called you to do that, read the word and rightly divide it. When he's preaching to the masses, what people like to call the Sermon on the Mount, I call it God's will for mankind. That's his word for us all. But when he's speaking to an individual, we need to rightly divide it. I mean, one time he told some individuals to go take a donkey and bring it to me. And if asked, tell them the master told me to do it. Well, if you and I try that, they'll call the law and accuse us of horse stealing or, or uh, jack boot stealing. <laughs> Beloved brothers and sisters should always be reminded good works never justify sin. Maybe you give more in the offering than anybody. That doesn't give you a right to have an affair. For whoever shall keep the whole law, verse 10 and 11, and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you do murder, you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So be reminded that our sins are only justified by the blood of Jesus. And he didn't justify sin. He justifies sinners. Not to give them the right to live a life of sin, but to give them a right to run to the throne of grace to find help and forgiveness in time of need. Beloved brothers and sisters should always be accountable to the law of liberty. Verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? He uses this term, in the previous chapter, verse 25, talking about us looking into the Word, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. What is the law of liberty? Will you go back to his brother, Jesus, in John chapter 8, he said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, or if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Did you know that? You cannot claim to be a disciple if you're not continuing in the Lord's word. And when, when you do that, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word there is related to the same word used in James 1 and in James 2 define as liberty. So you could say, the truth will liberate you. What is that? 
What liberates us? What law liberates us? It's the words of Jesus, the commands of Christ, the curriculum of the Great Commission, who said, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I, not Moses, everything I commanded you. What did Jesus do with the law of Moses? He elevated them to the matter of the heart. Moses said, do not murder, or God said it through Moses. Jesus said, do not hate. If you hate, there's murder in your heart. The Torah, the law, the commands of Moses said, do not commit adultery. Jesus made that a matter of the heart. Do not look woman with lust in your heart. For if you do, you've committed adultery in your heart. So when you make things a matter of the heart, it liberates you. Who knows that's true? It liberates. When I run to the cross, when I'm tempted to hate someone, I go to the throne of grace, my great high priest, and say, help me, Lord, take this hatred out of my heart. He will do it. Spend some time in him. Learn some scripture. The same with lust and any other sinful desires you have. The law of liberty, the great liberator, the commands of Christ will set you free. The people hearing this got all offended. We're the children of of Abraham. We've never been in need of freedom. Meanwhile, they're living under the thumb of the Romans and living under the thumb of harsh religion. Because the laws of Moses weren't enough. They had all these fence laws that they, they had on them and they were trying to put on other people. So that is the law of liberty as I understand it. If you have another understanding, let's talk. I want to I learn about this. As beloved brothers and sisters, we should be merciful when making a judgment. Sometimes we have to make judgments. I know Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you use, it will come back on you. But he went on to say, and do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they they turn and rend you with them. So he's saying you have to make some judgment calls in what you do with your pearls. What is your pearls? Things that are precious to you. Who would let just anyone babysit their children? That is in the sphere or the realm of your authority. Where you have authority, you have to make judgments. And we're called not to be harsh judges, but wise judges, not stupid judges. Just throw judgment out the window. That's not what Jesus was saying. Read the whole chapter where he says judge not, and you'll see this. So when making a judgment, we must be merciful. For judgment, verse 13, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, we must be merciful people. Merciful. But wise. If the burglar breaks in your house a second time, (laughs) actually, if if a burglar breaks in your house and he's broken into other houses, do not go to the judge and ask for mercy because the best thing that could happen to him is to go to jail, to stop. Because if you let him go free, he'll rob your neighbor next week and maybe come back and rob you again because he has no respect for the law. He's lawless. So there's a place for justice to be hard. 
But harsh judgment is, go to hell. Never tell anybody that. Did Jesus die to give us the right and freedom to tell people to go into art of darkness? No. That's God's call. Beloved brothers and sisters should always be, this is the final point of the outline, should always be living our faith in the real world. Can we say real? real. Keeping it real. <laughs> we can be all sanctimonious people of faith on Sunday morning, but how are we Monday morning? How are we Saturday night? Can our faith be seen in how we live? Do we respect the royal law? You know, Jesus raised the level of the royal law. The royal law was exactly what Moses said. He raised the level of it before he left his disciples. He said, I give a new commandment to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So if you don't even love yourself anymore and you think you can't love your neighbor, Jesus took that cop out out of the way. As I have loved you, did he love us? So we need to love one another. How did he love us? He gave his life, the ultimate expression of love. And we are to give our life for others. If a poor person comes in and there's no place for him to sit down, he is going to feel like we're a partial congregation. Get up and give him your seat. Or at least come tell me, Pastor, you need to give your seat up. Someone's here that needs one. <laughs> your purse doesn't have to have its own seat. Finally, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, have more in 2024 without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Do we want dead faith or living faith? Now this brings a question. Because Paul wrote, by grace are you saved through faith, and that, I think he's implying the word faith, that faith is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So is James wrong? Or is Paul wrong? Is there a contradiction here? This causes Calvinist fits. I don't see a, co a contradiction. Because the same Paul that wrote, by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast, it's a gift of God. The same man who wrote that also said, there are no liars, no thieves, no fornicators in the kingdom of God. What is that? That's people who make a lifestyle of it. They may know who Jesus is or they may believe in him like they believe in Abraham Lincoln. They really don't believe in him. If you really have faith in the laws of Texas, you'll abide by him, right? Even those of us that go five miles over the speed limit, you're staying tethered to the law. I'm not justifying sin by obedience. <laughs> well, officer, I stopped at the last red light. I drove, I drove under the speed limit yesterday. That's what is the deal? There is no conflict. Faith that saves is faith that saves. The faith that saves will lead us into following Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then you will not believe he just came and spoke cute little 
sayings to be pasted on our refrigerator to give us a happy, warm, glowing feeling. No, he came and gave the word for mankind for us all to be taken seriously. And none of us can obey them in our own strength. So they drive us to our knees. Help me, Lord. I want to kill somebody right now. Help me, Lord. I'm finding it hard to walk in love. Help me, Lord. I'm being tempted to stretch the truth. Help me, Lord. I am being sinned against. Help me to love my enemies. I tell you, a lot of things he said were raising the level of thou shalt not murder. It's true. So here's what I want to say about this. While we are saved by Christ alone through faith alone, that faith will not stay alone, for fruit will surely follow. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Faith is a gift of the Spirit. Saving faith is a gift of God. Faith is a walk. We walk by faith, not by sight. It doesn't say we sit around by faith. We walk. That implies action by faith. We follow him by faith, and we rest by faith. We trust in him. If you really have faith in Jesus, you'll trust him to know that what he says will bring us abundant life. Um, Pastor, what about the gospel? It seems like you're preaching just a bunch of good works, and isn't this that therapeutic deism I've been hearing about? Good point. Let's bring in the gospel. Where is Jesus in this text? We're not to disrespect the poor, right? So where is Jesus? He took the place of the disrespected. He took the place of the poor. He took upon himself. He became poor so that we might be made rich. He became sin, took the position of sin without sinning so that we might be made righteous. He came down to the lowest so that we might be raised to the highest. He became naked so that we could be clothed. He became a curse for us so that we could be blessed. I could go on, but I think you get the point. So Jesus is in this chapter. He took these things for us so that we could be brought into his kingdom. And we must love others as he loved us, as he took our place. So we take the place of those that have felt disrespected and not do the same to them. That make sense? Third question, what about you? Are you a Jesus follower? Are you a believer saved by grace through faith and that's not of yourselves? Or do you just think you are? You just made mental assent. You just checked the box. You just raised your hand because your daddy told you you'd go to hell if you didn't raise your hand. What kid wouldn't raise their hand, right? Or you're truly a believer in the Lord. While Christ took our place, we must receive him by faith in order to benefit from his substitution. His substitution taking our place is what saves us. The wages of sin is death. A fine has been weighed. Someone must pay it with their life. And Christ, the most innocent of all, paid the price for the most guilty of all, which is death. You can't get any more punished than an execution, right? So he suffered an unjust death so that we might receive mercy. We as sinners, 
have broken the law of God? Well, I haven't killed anybody, yes, but have you? We could go down the list. Somewhere you have broken the law, which makes you guilty of it all. So Christ took our place so that whoever calls upon his name can receive the benefits. What a beautiful name it is. You know, 47 years ago, I met a vet, and we exchanged phone numbers and addresses, and a couple days later, I went to see her, and a relationship was born. Well, Christ, before departing, gave us his name. Why? So we can call upon him and have a relationship. So what I'm about to do will not necessarily save anyone, but if you will do it from your heart, before the sun goes down today, I pray that you do, you can be saved. Let's just bow our heads and do it together all as one group just to demonstrate how it can happen. Jesus, Jesus. I call on your name. I ask you to save me. Come into my life and make me yours. Forgive me of my sins and everything that has separated me from you And from people. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for our sins. I believe you have risen from the dead. Jesus, I ask you these things. John 1 says, As many as received him, to them, he gave the right to be the sons of God. You can become a child of God, be born again, as he told a man named Nicodemus in John 3, by believing in him, and it starts by calling on his name. There's enough wicked calling on his name. You know. Maybe you've done it. A hammer hits your thumb, and boy, it hurts, and you say, Jesus Christ! Why don't you say Muhammad or Allah or Buddha or the name of a president? Anyway, call on his name for salvation. Stop blaspheming his name. You'll be forgiven for that, but call on his name. And you too can live a life of fruitfulness and faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray in the name of Jesus, if any of us do not know you, that before the day is over, they would call on you. Maybe in their honesty, say, Lord, I don't know about all this, but I call on you and ask you to prove yourself to me. Ask you to come into my life. Ask you to begin to intervene. Lord, that they would pray to you in your name about the things that concern them about their problems, about their hurts, their fears. And I pray, Lord, for those in this room who are believers who've not been taking your word seriously, I pray, Lord, that you would begin to order their steps, order our steps according to your word, dear Lord, that we might not sin against you. 
In Jesus' name, everybody said. according to the book of Revelation are bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Don't rush off if you don't have to. But let's have some time of prayer. If you're comfortable with this, turn to someone near you or far from you and say, could I pray for you? And ask them what you could pray for. You don't have to get their life history, but just share briefly what you'd like to receive prayer for. And I'm going to ask the elders to come join me up front here to anoint with oil, which is another principle taught in the book of James, those who are sick. So if you're sick, this kind of prayer is available to you as we the music continues to play. You're free to go if you need to, but if you don't have to, just turn and ask someone, could I pray for you about anything? Or if someone asks you, don't, don't resist the opportunity to be prayed for. Can we do that? Yeah.